May God draw doubting, fearful, even reluctant hearts. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, empower and embolden us to be witnesses to a lost and hurting world. Amen. Acts 2, Pentecost, Peter's Pentecost sermon. Flames of fire, a rushing wind. People from various parts around the Mediterranean and around the world gathered in Jerusalem, and they hear in their own language the wonders and glories of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And they ask the question, what does this mean? It's good for us to ask that question this morning as well. What does this mean? You probably remember where you were in November, watching the election coverage on election night, looking and watching some pretty stunned commentators and political pundits trying to make sense of what was confusing to them as the votes came in, and it turned out that Trump and not Clinton had won the presidency, and then they began to scramble to explain how did this happen and what does this mean in 2016 and 2017 America? What does this say about who we are and where we are? Regardless of where you are on that political matter, the reality is everybody who is trying to postulate and guess what is happening, what does this mean, they were operating on at best educational guesses. They had an incomplete knowledge. We still have incomplete knowledge and understanding. This past year, a couple of cognitive scientists named Stephen Slolman and Philip Fernbach, they, they wrote a book called The Knowledge Illusion. And in this book, one of the things that they talked about is how we have access like never before to unfettered information and knowledge. It's at, it's at the tips of our fingers. We can access any information about any subject in the universe. And yet, there's a sense in which individuals, we know in our species a little bit less than perhaps our forebears did. For instance, I, I don't know how to make my own clothing, uh, farm my own food, um, fix my car. There's a lot of things that I take for granted that are right in front of me. We have access to knowledge, but we don't really understand. So they had this test that they asked people, do you understand how a zipper works? Simple enough question. I think all of you would say, yeah, I know how a zipper works. I, it's how I put on my clothes or my jacket or my dress. Well, if, if you were to be asked in detail, specifically, explain exactly what's happening to make a zipper function. I dare say very few of us would actually know how to put together the pieces of what makes a zipper function as a zipper. There's a lot of examples like this. How does an airplane fly? How does this tube shoot across the sky defying gravity? Uh, some of us maybe have the, the physics degrees to understand that, but many of us don't. Or how does a cell phone work? How am I getting a signal invisibly through the air straight into my device that I can hear and talk and play games on? Um, you know, we all have very incomplete and impartial uh, knowledge. On December 17, 1903, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, those brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, they defied gravity. They began to play around with a, a machine that could fly, a flying machine. And they actually got off the air and uh, got off the ground and succeeded, traveling even for almost a minute in the air for the, on their first day of attempts. And 
I'll tell you, I found out that the New York Times, a very leading newspaper entity of, at that time, there was no mention the next day of this event happening. There was no mention the next week. There was no mention six months later that this event had actually happened. In fact, a year later, there was a hot air tycoon who was being interviewed. And he was asked, you know, will, will man be able to fly one day? And his answer was, oh, in the very, 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 very far future, with a shrug that kind of suggested probably an eternity from now. It had happened a year earlier, and he was unaware of it. You see, the rights had already done it. <laughs> see, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. His church has marched on triumphantly, and yet there's still a world that is in great denial of these things. And perhaps even you sitting here today, maybe in our own hearts, we're numb to the potency of what we are celebrating and talking about this morning. Because the stakes don't feel as high for us as, say, our brothers and sisters in Egypt, who on Palm Sunday, you may recall, in both Tanta and Alexandria, there were terrorist bombs that went off in two churches, killing 45 and injuring 125. And yet they gather each and every week defiantly under the name and banner of Jesus Christ at great cost and peril to themselves. The church is still here. We are still gathering. 2,000 years later, after this Pentecost event, G.K. Chesterton wrote about the church, that the church is rushing through the ages as the winged thunderbolt of thought and everlasting enthusiasm, a thing without rival or, or resemblance and still as new as it is old. It's still as new as it is old. We are still declaring the things, the promises that God has given to His people. He is still giving today. We gather today not because this is a social club, not because we're an umbrella organization for various charitable causes, though we certainly care about justice in our society. We're not gathered here just because that's what good, quote unquote good people do. But we are a people who are brought together, inspired by the Holy Spirit, driven to be a people who are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that God has in fact broken into history in the incarnation of Jesus. And he broke into history in Acts 2 in this amazing scene where people from all over the known world were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language by common fishermen and a tax collector who couldn't have possibly known their languages. What does this mean, they asked. Peter gives a pretty authoritative explanation. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty sure if one of us had a flaming fire hanging over our head and, we were, and somebody was speaking, we would listen. We would want to know. What it, tell us. Peter's saying what has been fulfilled right here in your presence is what Jesus has promised. We, see it, we read it in the gospel reading in John 20 when he breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. His promise has become fulfilled here in our scene. He, he, before he was ascended into the right hand of the Father, he, he told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And we see this today. The gospel has extended to the ends of the earth. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who are either finishing up worship or getting up to worship right now in very distant lands under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus. 
What does this mean, this outpouring? Surely it doesn't just mean they were drunk, as some people thought. It was 9 o'clock in the morning, Peter said, on the first day of the week. And he said, what's fulfilled here is what the prophet Joel said, is your young men and young women will prophesy. Prophecy. Bear witness. Bet most of us didn't walk in here today thinking, I'm a prophet. But you are, because you're an inheritor of something. The same spirit that brought, gives breath to our lungs, and the same spirit who has brought from the dead the Lord Jesus, and the same spirit who has awakened us to the reality of redemption through Jesus Christ, he has made us who are spiritually dead, spiritually alive to God. Jesus was sent by the Father and he has sent us, you and me, out in the world as signs and witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We may not have the same platform as Peter, though you could probably go down to Disney World and start speaking a lot of different languages and reach a lot of people, just as Peter did. People from all over the world hearing the good news about Jesus. And what we have is the expanding of the gospel. The gospel is always opening up and expanding what God had begun to reveal in the Old Testament in a larger way. For instance, Moses in Numbers chapter 11 was instructed by God to take some elders outside of the camp of Israel so that they could prophesy. So there's 70 elders out there and they're prophesying, declaring the majesty and wonders of their God. And Joshua, his, his help, Moses' helper, comes to him and says, hey, Moses, there's, there's actually two guys. They're still in the camp, and they're prophesying there among the people. I thought God said to bring them outside the camp. And Moses' response isn't, shame on them. Get them in line. His response is, oh, if only all of Israel would prophesy. If only all of Israel would prophesy the great name of Jesus Christ. Joel, the prophet, said, in the last days, the Lord would put out his spirit on his people. Sons and daughters will prophesy. This is God's design. You and I, the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be a kingdom of priests. We are to be prophetic people, speaking good news, that's gospel, good news, to a world that is desperately hungry for it and often doesn't even know that it has that ache. I love that our presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, he calls our church the Jesus Movement. And that's what it is. It's a movement, a movement that began here at Pentecost in Acts 2. What does this mean? This means that you and I and everyone who is baptized into Jesus Christ, we are implicated into a divine conspiracy. We are, we are as Jesus Christ has ushered in new creation, a new reality, a new order of things through His grace and redemption and forgiveness of sin, so too we are to embody and carry that out into our places that we live into. So we're going to see young Max get baptized here in a few months. And, and Max doesn't even know, but you're signed up, buddy. You are enlisted in this army of God's people to be a witness, to be a sign, a signpost, like a mile marker along the way. You're almost there, pointing the way to the destination. He's, when we receive baptism, we are receiving the seal of God's Holy Spirit that his promises do indeed come true, that his promises are for us and for everybody. Pentecost reminds us that we are empowered as God's people to be witnesses to the gospel, whether you are a butcher, a baker, candlestick maker, 
Whatever your lot in life, whatever, wherever you find yourself spending your time outside of this building, outside of our gatherings, that is your primary role is to be, the, uh, to be a reminder to others that you are a signpost, an extension of Christ. And your life's bearing witness, and that might, I hope this doesn't feel like a sag on your shoulders, like, oh, I'm not up to it. I'm not up to being a prophet. I'm not up to telling people trust in Jesus. That feels confrontational in our day and age. It feels like you're telling people what to think and what to do. I want you to know that the ways you go about your work, your common life, being a neighbor, being a friend, the way they maybe have a glimpse into your own life as you're asking questions, as you're struggling with things, as you face adversity of your own, may they see you and I not trying to put on a really good mask like we have it all together, not pretending like, hey, life's easy peasy and we got this, but actually being honest about our own struggles and watching, allowing them to have access to watch us trust over and over again in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your life is holy and full of meaning or it is meaningless. The spirit of prophecy is poured out on his people and it's for you and for me. I like to think of Pentecost as being like two things. It's like an x-ray and it's like a preview. In a way it's like an x-ray like the x-ray exposes and shows visibly what's going on inside of the body. It makes visible to, visible to outsiders the unseen inner cure of the gospel. That the finished work of Jesus Christ, the grace that he gives us, is new creation that's broken in. Kingdom come, the kingdom of God here in our midst. But we know too well, don't we, that the kingdom's only here in part. You may have woken up this morning to the news of another terrorist attack in London, killing eight, injuring 48. We're next week actually going to be remembering the awful, terrible shooting at Pulse a year ago. Our community is still bruised from the hate that infiltrated our, our place here in Orlando. We're, we're all very aware that things are not right and they are broken. The gospel provides an x-ray to show us and expose our need. But it also, thankfully, acts as a preview. It is a coming attraction. Here is what is in store for us. God has not abandoned us or left us. It's a glimpse of the final completion of what Christ's restorative work is to be. That... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter goes on in this sermon, it's not in our text this morning, but he goes on to say that this Jesus of Nazareth whom you've crucified, God has raised him up and made him Lord and Christ or Messiah. He is Lord like Caesar is Lord. He is in control and governing all things. He has dominion over all. And yet he is the suffering servant, the anointed one God has appointed to take on the suffering of his people and to, be, and to rise victoriously from the grave, defeating death, our last enemy. As the church, we have the awesome privilege and honor of living into that story, of living into the story out there, 
amongst people, amongst the people you are going to rub shoulders with Monday through Saturday, the people you're going to spend time with, the people you're going to look in the face, who are in desperate need of hope and peace. I like to think everybody here, even in Orlando, is much like those, those creatures in, in the Chronicles of Narnia who are turned into stone by the white witch. They're frozen in stone. They're, they're waiting for this curse to be broken and for spring to melt the dark winter away. And you know, your neighbors and your coworkers, your family members, friends, they're looking too for answers to questions and they're asking really significant questions. But we know that most people aren't looking to the church to answer those questions. They're not thinking the, the answer's right here. They're going to places like affinity groups. They're going to the places they spend their time. We're, we're one of the entertainment meccas of the world, right? Orlando, entertainment. We're looking, people are looking to escape their problems. They're looking maybe to enter into a social life and social reality that will help give their life meaning and fulfillment. We are all looking for the right fit, the right group, whether it's through exercise or health or a lifestyle. But we're called to have a Monday through Saturday faith. It's not just here when we come into the building. There's a Scottish missionary named Leslie Newbigin. He went to India and taught the gospel for 40 years. Um, He said this about the church. He said, the church exists in prime reality from Monday to Saturday. And all its members dispersed throughout fields and homes and offices and factories, bearing the royal priesthood of Christ in every corner of the world. That's the church. That's the church after Pentecost being sent out to be a prophetic voice into the lives of the people that we encounter. Let us please be wary of not domesticating the gospel. Let's not domesticate it. Let's live into this power of hope because the Holy Spirit is sweeping like a mighty wind across our world. May we faithfully proclaim His saving work until His return so that, as Peter says... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen and amen.